And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Just who the hell are you? He's James T. Kirk. Don't you read history? What did you say your name was? Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise. Which one of you is the captain? Do we violate the treaty, Captain? Red alert! All hands! Battle stations! This is Captain Kirk. Can we just get down to it, please? Prepare to attack. All hands battle station. Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Monthly Monday, number 42. I am Chris Honeywell and I'm here with Scott Gardner. Hey! And this, <laughs> you are like a, the human soundbite. That last <laughs> night I did the same thing in the same exact, hey, it's like you push a button on his back. Hey, um, this is going to be a weird month for it's already a weird month because it's 42 month. The, the because it's us the answer to life, the universe and everything. But uh, instead of doing two episodes, we're mushing them together into uh, some sort of weird Star Trek team up. And that is because our esteemed guest came up with the idea of that, because two of these shows are so similar that we just have to do a special show and put them side by side so you can see. And and who is this enigmatic special guest? Why? As soon as you hear the word gravitas, I think you might know who's back. <laughs> Hello. Three-time winner of the most famous published Star Trek author on a Two True Freaks podcast. <laughs> Three years running of the coveted award, Mr. Mike Poteet. I'd like to thank all the little people who made it possible. <laughs> no, seriously, thank you guys for having me. It's nice to be back on the show. I appreciate it's it. It's been too long since we had you on. And I appreciate your flexibility in mushing the, what, crossing the Trek streams. Like, I, this is Star Trek Law and Order Night is what this is. <laughs> <laughs> In the Starfleet justice system. Yes, it, it totally is. Oh, I hate that. 
<laughs> it's the TV gavel of justice coming down in your ear. Yeah, we have two courtroom Star Trek courtroom dramas, which, you know, okay, that would be a good reason to put them side by side. But man, these things have a lot in common. So there's good. We're gonna have fun uh, comparing and contrasting these two. Yeah, it just occurred to me that that they missed a prime opportunity for an excellent courtroom drama on Star Trek. How come there was never a Kirk paternity suit episode? <laughs> like all his past. I was just gonna know. say it would be like a montage. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it would be all these women putting their hands on the little palm reader, and it's just like. <laughs> Oh. It'd be like the Cartman's dad episode in reverse. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, we'll get on to we'll get into Kirk's uh, peccadillos here, and in, in, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I say so. As you know, I, I guess it just makes sense to go in chronological order and start with the old Trek first, since uh, that was the first trial that that happened, and that means this. This episode is the one we picked last month. It's Court Martial. Excellent. Which makes perfect sense that this would be a, the name for the trial episode. Yes, <laughs> yes it's a aptly named episode. Captain's Log, Stardate 2949.9. Due to an accident in space, I have been relieved of duty, awaiting the verdict of a general court martial. Computers don't lie. Are you suggesting that I did? There's still time to change our plea. The man who killed my father. That's not so. He was my friend. You Thinking of the service. I won't have it smeared. By what? Commodore Stone. By an evident perjurer who is either covering up his bad judgment, his cowardice, or something That's as far as you go. You're about to lop off the captain's professional head, and you're sitting here playing chess with the computer. Mr. Spock, you're the most cold-blooded man I've ever known. Why, thank you, Doctor. You still haven't told me how you know so much about what the prosecution's going to do. Because, Jim Kirk, my dear old love, I am the prosecution. Not the only, not the only Star Trek original um, on trial um, episode, but the uh, the only one I think where the trial was just basically. The foot, you know, it was a trial story. Yeah, I mean, I think of the menagerie, but the trial there was more a, a framing device. Right, right. To, uh, to work in the, the pilot footage, but they, they both, both of those trials begin. Well, the, the, the court martial trial started on Starbase Eleven, which is the same Starbase uh, they visit at uh, the beginning of the menagerie. Now, now, when you watched this, Mike, did you watch which version of of this? Did I watched. You watch? the, I watched the remastered version. Yes. Actually. All right. So we're all on I, the same I page. Was great. I was. I, I even questioned whether because I've seen the Menagerie so many times. You, you guys know that's my favorite episode, mm -hmm. and uh, so I saw the the same matte paintings and thought, oh, I I, I I had to go check and see which episode was produced first, and sure enough, car, court martial was. So all these matte paintings I associate with. Uh, the Menagerie, they are originally from Court Martial, but for the remastered version, they've added flying shuttlecraft in the distance and uh, people walking also... in, around inside the building. And... Yeah, yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's really beautiful. I I love the opening space shot of of the Enterprise and another another ship, and then a shuttlecraft just sort of flying between the two of them, and you see the damage yeah. on the side of the Enterprise. The damage is so detailed. Yeah, and I think they have a like an oval spot or something where the I guess the ion pod was. Mm-hmm. You can see how it was forcefully jettisoned away from the hull of the ship. Yep, as usual, they did a tasteful and seamless job of, you know, I mean, there's there's not an, uh, an awful lot to gussy up on on this episode, you know. No, but they no. just they just added little details that 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 um you know sort of jived with the story and oh. it works perfectly. I think it's a real testament to the enhancements that my kids don't see them. You know, really? they, mm-hmm. they just accept it as a natural part of the episode. Mm. And so it's not like, you know, when, when they did the special editions of the first Star Wars, where those scenes just jump right out to you, no yeah. matter if it's your first time watching it or if it's your, you know, thousandth time watching it. They just don't blend. Whereas yeah. these enhancements, uh, they're, they're masterful. They're really, really good. Because I was watching it with both of my kids this afternoon, and I said something about, wow, that looks really nice. You know, they really did a good job on, on the enhanced huh. version or something like that. And they, they totally hadn't caught it. They were just caught up in the episode. Uh-huh. That's and, awesome. You know yeah, what? Yeah, I great. think that's great. The downside is that I noticed a lot in this, this episode is uh, once you HD up these old episodes, you notice... A lot of these actors and actresses had smoker teeth. <laughs> uh-huh. they, had, they, had, they had like nicotine, you know, cigarette stains on their teeth. Like DeForest Kelly, um, the uh, Kirk's old flame had some, was was a smoker. You could tell, and I was just like, wow, you, I, you know, you never yeah. noticed this before, but you could see like the de- the details of their teeth. <laughs> I had a, yeah, I guess... a moment like that with uh, with the little computer cards. Mm-hmm. I'd always believed that they were plastic, like a computer disc. But I actually think they're they may be wooden, like like a like a child's block, like a painted block. Mm-hmm. I think you're probably I, right. Yeah, I caught a gl- a real good glimpse of one in HD while I was watching this today, and I was like, you know, I think that's a, actually a block of wood instead of like a piece of like, you know hard plastic or something would be a lot well, cheaper I, and easier to make <laughs> yeah. yeah and i've heard that the phasers were wood mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. i don't know if that's true 100 percent fact but that's what i've heard and uh so yeah that probably is easier to to sculpt wood than molded plastic so uh, right the other thing that i noticed as i've noticed with a few others um is uh stunt doubles don't don't work anymore and i don't know did you these, did you notice that the stunt double did this one move, and then when he pulled his head up, he shook his head back yeah, he and goes, forth, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so that nobody yeah. could tell it wasn't his cartoon. face. Yeah, so nobody could tell it wasn't you know Shatner's face. <laughs> it was like if you if you get your face up, make sure you like shake your head or something or keep it moving. And in well, the I old can... days, that would have flown. But of course, <laughs> I can remember. All. I can remember watching Space Seed on the VHS and. Uh, watching the the fight scene in the engineering room and even then never never noticed that it wasn't uh, you know Shatner I mean I guess it, intellectually if you'd asked me I knew it wasn't but um couldn't tell but now it's just <laughs> it's so <laughs> it's so glaring <laughs> but uh oh well you know 
designed for analog low def in the 1960s on a, <laughs> when most people still probably didn't have color color TVs yet either so I think we're getting just a little ahead of ourselves we we oh, need to do right. a a little synopsis on this one and then we'll we'll get into uh general discussion and notes and such that's true that's so, your job there <laughs> yep i'm i'm being lax well i'm pulling this one again once again out of the uh star trek compendium this is uh episode court martial what what number did we determine this was because this I think it was number 20 is 20 what that's picked. what i was thinking yeah the book listed as episode 15 but i thought in our master list that this was actually episode 20 i think you're right well i think that book goes by production order so it oh, may have been okay 20th to air Ah, I gotcha. All right, so the synopsis on this one. Unfortunately, one thing I don't like about this book, the, the one criticism I have is that it doesn't give air dates. It gives everything else. It gives you dates for the, the, oh, the draft yeah. and the scripts and the revised and when it was filmed and everything else, but it doesn't give air dates. And I, I that kind of drives me crazy, but I forgot to look it up. But I'm assuming it's probably sometime... In either late '66 or early '67, just based on when it was filmed. So uh, the synopsis on this one is: During an ion storm, the Enterprise takes a severe buffeting, and records officer Ben Finney enters the starship's ion pod to take important readings. When the storm makes it necessary to jettison the pod, Kirk follows normal procedures and warns Finney to evacuate. The pod is jettisoned with Finney apparently inside. At Starbase 12. Commodore L.T. Stone institutes a court-martial against Kirk. The records show that Kirk jettisoned the pod before Finney had a chance to escape. Lieutenant Ariel Shaw, the prosecuting attorney and an old girlfriend of Kirk's, uh, retains the brilliant but eccentric lawyer Samuel Cogley uh, to defend the captain. Although the evidence is against Kirk, Cogley, with the aid of Mr. Spock, is able to prove that Ben Finney is actually alive. <laughs> because of an old grudge, Finney had uh, hoped to fake his own death, discrediting Captain Kirk. And once again, kind of a dry summation of the episode for what is essentially a, a, a pretty good, uh, pretty good nail biter with a nice, you know, rocking uh, fisticuff ending. <laughs> fisticuff with a sweaty, crazy guy that Kirk likes. So <laughs> Why did you do that? This is actually, this is actually like Kirk's favorite stomping ground he gets to beat the hell out of a guy who's crazed sweaty and who's who has an old grudge with him whose name is close to finnegan what is it with kirk and these uh, irish people from his past you know he has a very finnegan like relationship with this guy or, or uh, to some point but it also this is also a story of kirk versus a computer about, yeah. you know, 20 minutes into the story, they're like, well, you know, the computer, blah, blah, blah. This is, you know, this is Captain Kirk versus a computer. And then I'm like, oh, my God. Well, he's all over that. You can't. You right. Know, game that, that's one of my notes. Over. Because, yeah. A, a real says to him, she goes, the prosecution will build its case on Kirk versus the computer and watch Shatner. He's got a look that totally says, oh, I got this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Computers, oh, yeah. They'll be smoking by the end of the, the show, and I'll be having sex with, with Miss Shaw. Yep. It's interesting, quick, and maybe this is a reflection of the 1960s and computers being all kind of new and shiny and, you know, but how quick everybody is to uh, believe the computer evidence when today... The the uh, the initial reaction might be the opposite. Oh, it's been faked. 
or photoshopped or right. edited or you know it's a big shock oh what the computer evidence has been tampered with no <laughs> like of course it's been tampered with you fools <laughs> so you know if you can buy that it's still a pretty solid episode but uh, <laughs> different attitudes toward uh, the infallibility of the computer today yes yes well you know their computers were so advanced back then that they even talked <laughs> yes, I can't imagine. I'm sorry, I was just going to say, that's one thought that I had thinking, you know, we're talking about the enhanced versions. And I'm curious what you guys think about this. You know, we, we've we've praised repeatedly the fact that these enhanced versions enhance, they don't really take anything away, and, and they complement nicely what was originally there. But what would you think about taking away the adding machine sound when the computer talks? Hmm. I probably wouldn't, I, I think I like it in theory, but I probably wouldn't like it in fact, because when they took out a bunch of the ambient noise from Star Trek, the motion picture in the director's That's, cut, yeah, I yeah. miss it. I, I do miss too. Yeah, that yeah. travel pod available at Cargo 6 and that kind of stuff. That they, right. they took it all out, or a lot of it out, and I miss it. So the, the Enterprise bridge from the classic series just has to have the adding machine as part of the, the ambient <laughs> noise or else that's not the bridge, you know. I look at it as Kirk's a, a very annoying person and it's like having a Macintosh computer where it's like, what background noise would you like with your computer? <laughs> you know, oh, I'll take vintage adding machine. And it's, it's just like, what voice would you like? I would like nasal shrew, you know, as my voice <laughs> and, and, put, and put them together and that's what is, you know. Maybe he sets dial-up modem as somebody's ringtone on his communicator too. Exactly. <laughs> that would be great if his if his communicator played that little swanky that you actually <laughs> hear in this episode. That little swanky uh, Star Trek theme, you know, Captain. Oh, the jazz version. I hate that arrangement, man. I really. Oh, I love it. I Whenever that it. shows up in the show, I know somebody's on the make. It's just like, oh, there's going to be. McCoy is on the make, and he's going he, before he knows who a real is. Oh, no, he's he knows the who. moves on her. He knows who. Well, yeah, he's first he's putting the moves on her. Like, that's right. I know Captain Kirk. That's right, in case you're wondering. Yeah, he's going after the leftovers. <laughs> and then when she's just like, oh, I know Kirk well. And he's like, oh, and he's like, well, maybe I'll still have a chat. Well, you know what? I'm his best friend. <laughs> and he's going to need all the friends he can get. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that line. But I, I think that's maybe the only time, I maybe in uh, the one with Yonada, too. But I, that's one of the only times I can remember McCoy making a romantic. And, well, no, that's not true. Come to think of it. I don't, it fair... I don't know how romantic it was. It was more no, just no, sort no. of like, hey, baby. Loosely. <laughs> <laughs> you want to get you want to get next to Kirk? You ain't going to do it through Spock. Let me tell you that. He's, I'm, a, uh, I'm a doctor. He's kind of old, creepy doctor guy in that in Shore Leave with. Uh, uh, yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Think, yeah. I would no. be old, creepy doctor guy in Shore Leave with, with her, too. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> but McCoy's line in, in this when he meets uh, Ariel and he says, uh, you know, all my old friends look like doctors. All Kirk's old friends <laughs> yes. look like you. That's a great line. That's a great line, line yes. <laughs> he sells it well. <laughs> it's still kind of pathetic, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, it shows the assumption that uh, there would be no attractive women doctors back in the 1960s, you know. Oh, this is true. 
all my old friends look like old doctors. You know. I like I like the I like the old sixties the old sixties mating rituals the old sixties sound <laughs> effects in it. The uh, that's had some great. It had uh, somebody said you're an expert in space psychology. I I mean you can't beat that. And it was at the <laughs> point when Spock was still Vulcanian. Yes, yes, I I noticed that he calls himself a Vulcanian. A Vulcanian, so. yes. I I just love it. It has that, and and it, and the lawyer has that whole like hammy um, Twilight Zone character, you know, plucked out of time. You know, he's he's he could hmm. be, you know, he was very twentieth century style. Yeah, I. I, I haven't seen this episode in a long time. Not probably because it would be one of the ones that I probably wouldn't pick out. Cause, yeah. Uh, but, boy, I, I, you know, it's, it's I a always really find myself episode. enjoying the hell out of it. I yeah. watched, now I watched the TNG one first. And so I was watching this one also with the thought of, of comparing the two. So that, that added a lot of enjoyment to it too. Like, um, now, you know, I, 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 I think we should do a lot of the comparisons to him once we get into Measure of a Man. That way we'll have yeah. both stories on the table. But do you guys think that when they wrote Measure of a Man, they purposely might have used Court Martial as, oh, as I sort think of a jumping to. point? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was an homage, yeah. yeah and okay. log, you know, as much as it was its own thing, which, which we'll talk about, I think it was also a homage to this episode in lots of ways. Absolutely. Evidently, and I noticed this with both episodes. You know, you've, you've in both of them, you've got, you know, the 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 captains. All all the, I was going to say, the captains are on trial. You know, Picard's not really on trial, but you know, he's part of the the trial process in his episode. And this one, Kirk is actually on trial. But in both of them, the the you know the uh, part of, somebody that's part of the actual prosecution process or part of the judging process. Is an ex is an old girlfriend flame, yeah. of the yeah an old yeah. flame of the captains? Is, yeah. is there no conflict of interest clauses in, in the future? I'm assuming. I mean, it, yeah, it seems like, they, especially yeah. in the. I know we don't want to get too much ahead in TNG, but especially in that one, you think she's the judge. She'd want to recuse herself from that, right? Uh, I don't right. know. I was and, thinking and in the next one, it was all an elaborate ruse from Picard to keep away from her. I was like, he was like, okay, I'll engage, I'll, I'll hire her, and that way, I won't have to take her to dinner, quote unquote, take her to dinner. I guess on the other hand, though, with with a real Shaw, as much as I made the comment about assuming there's no female doctors, she's a woman professional, and she's there's no question that she's going to do her job regardless of her personal feelings towards Jim Kirk, which is a nice right. progressive view of uh, women in the workforce for that time, you know. Um, and the professionalism of Starfleet. Well, that's interesting. The prof- I had not watched the, this episode. The quote unquote time. professionalism of Starfleet. Yeah, I had not <laughs> Sorry. Long time either. And I was sort of surprised that, uh, I mean, and, and now granted, this is early on in the series. So from the real world point of view, things are still forming, being determined, falling into place. But, but looking at it from within the story, here we've got this Starfleet Commodore whose first thought is he's going to to bury this and make it go away if only Kirk will help him cover it up and 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 then you know he's willing to to take the com- the computer evidence over this man that he knows and 
respects supposedly and knows the service record and you know i, I was just sort of struck by how starfleet was very willing to set aside the truth and set aside its own standards in order to avoid what conflict like like, like the army or something like the well, 20th century army or something well i don't i don't know what i thought you know commodore stone is not somebody who inspires my confidence in starfleet but uh so it was kind of at odds with how i think of the surface in star trek yeah he gave a a, a little hint of a like an old boys network you know like the police like the police when they're like okay we know you shouldn't have shot the old lady but you know mistakes were made and you know if you just do this and we'll put you on vacation for a little while and kirk of course doesn't doesn't go go for it what you don't like the shoot the old lady analogy jeez you guys Hey, listen, cops shoot little old ladies every day. Get over it. Ugh. Cops do a lot of... Well, no, I'm not even going to get into that. <clears throat> <laughs> they give, I, uh, they give I find people myself... tickets the best. <laughs> <laughs> I find myself rewatching this episode at a, at a very uh, strange and, and oddly coincidental time for, for myself personally with the character of, uh, of Samuel Cogley. You know, when we first meet him... You know, he he goes on the little mini rant about you know books versus. I love that you know, part. The, the computer, <laughs> of course, yeah. And, you know, at a, at a time when you know I have just gone digital, you know, with uh. my comic reading, oh. and uh, and I just was watching that and listening to to his argument, and and I think he makes a really compelling argument for you know the the paper versus the pixel, but I I just thought it was really cool. You know, I, I liked I liked the point that he was making that you know there, there's just nothing like the actual form itself you know the the actual you know holding the book in your hand type of thing i, I like you that might moment. have the information but this is where it lives this is where it was born is basically right saying. yeah although like the... although i would take it further and say actually it was born in somebody it was ideas in the mind and stuff but you know i think yeah, maybe i love that what... i'm sorry i just love that sentiment though that <laughs> that he had, whether it holds up to too much scrutiny or not. <laughs> well, I think maybe part of what his argument is is that when you have it in the book, you, you have to deal with the context. Like, the computer can get you to the bottom line, the main point, whatever, and like he says, can pull things together and synthesize them, but uh, but the Western legal tradition at least does value case law for, you know, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, I'm speaking kind of out of the <laughs> air here, but, but my understanding is that case law is important because it sh it shows how um, precedents come out of concrete situations. They're not just, you know, it's applying the abstract principles of the law to real life nuts and bolts, you know. All right. Well, from this point on, you are now our legal consultant for Two no, Three Freaks. No. <laughs> so we'll be having you on for your, your informed legal opinion from now on. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, we just get as close as we can get. That's all. <laughs> so far, you're it, man. I noticed that the uh, the Indian-looking starship captain that's at the far left on the tribunal, or, or actually, it can't really be a tribunal if there's four judges, but anyway. Quad Quad Bruno or whatever. His name was uh, Chandra, and wasn't uh -huh. that the name of Hal's builder? Yes, Dr. Chandra. Yeah, I thought so. It doesn't look Indian at all when we see him in two. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, that's okay. Not a... 
Yeah. Well, maybe they I were like... thinking by 2010, like, Indian names have spread. You That's know. what I was going to say. People don't always, you, you can't always assume from somebody's name. Yeah, right. Over, over time, yeah, people will, you know, names will get, will, will peel off their races and stick on to somebody else. The poor personnel officer doesn't even get a name. She's just the Enterprise personnel officer. They couldn't even be bothered to. She was to like a, a deer thing. in the headlights. I know. I felt bad. <laughs> she, she didn't want to say anything. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> no, ma'am. <laughs> I felt bad for her. Have to speak against her captain that way. It was but, really uh, funny because I was watching her and I'm like, this woman isn't a very good actress. Maybe she just sort of lucked into this role or won a contest or something. And then I was adding. You know, 40 years to her and stuff, and picturing her as like an older Asian woman, you know, talking to her grandkids and like, and oh, I bet you didn't know I was on Star Trek once. <laughs> Speaking of uh, adding age and things like that, I don't think the math with Jamie adds up. She seems a little bit old to have been named for Kirk. Because how old is he supposed to be in this series? I thought he was in his like mid to late. Uh, 30s. Uh, 34 is what I have in my head, but I don't know if that's yeah, that's, canon or not. That sounds right, but it's so weird in those days. People always looked older than they were. People with the, the haircuts and stuff, I think, made people look look older, but yeah. Uh, supposed to be, she's supposed to be 16? Uh, now, is, oh. that, is that Miri? No. 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 no different actor. Oh my god, they're very they're so similar. They both have that Judy Garland sort of little girl like talking, yeah. you know, thing. Oh, oh, Captain Kirk, you know. I I would have sworn that was the same actress who played Miri. I I wish her uh her um turn a uh, change of heart regarding Kirk had been dealt with a little more smoothly. It's kind of abrupt um when it happens, but See, that seems to me like somewhere there, there, either there's, there's a script rewrite yes. or a yeah. scene that got cut. Because when I wa and I watched this episode twice because I popped it in the other day and, and intended to just start watching it while I was doing something. And then I ended up watching the whole thing. And then I realized, crap, I never took a single note. So I mm -hmm. dug it back out today and rewatched it to take notes. So I actually watched it twice. And both times I watched it, I had the same thought in the scene where she comes to Kirk and Cogley and tries to talk Cogley out of what he's doing, that she knows something right. that she knows that hmm. Ben is still alive. And, and Cogley picks that up that's on where it. Cogley picks up. Exactly. Yeah. And that never plays out in the episode, but that's what I, every time I see that's this, that's what I think. He goes, Co Cogley, Cogley says something been. like, I'm starting to get an idea now. And I'm right. like, yeah. and I'm like, okay, she's in on it. Cause I remember that the I, when I was watching it, I'm like, oh, right. The guy's still alive, but I forgot that he goes crazy and all that. But I was, uh, uh, and I'm thinking maybe originally his daughter was going to be in on it with him for some reason. That would have right. been really interesting. And, and she was no. feeling bad because she was like, well, you know, I'm going to ruin Kirk's career. And my dad's not really dead. And, you know, so she was trying to do a little damage control by saying, uh -huh. hey, look, can we ca call this off? And that was what, what was right. was making Cogley go, 
Oh, okay, I see what's going on. But then it goes nowhere at all. When Cogley goes into court the next day, he's ready to just, he's, you yeah. know, just to close up shop and go home. Yeah. So it's it's weird. It, well, yeah. they don't have money in the 23rd century, so he doesn't care. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he's he's not got no like hour. <laughs> exactly. He's got no stake in this game. Well, you know? I think without having money, it makes you learn not how to, to add because... <laughs> Because I saw, I, I, there was just one of the worst. Now, when, when, when Spock was talking, when they were like, we're going to find the heartbeats on the ship, right? Oh. And Spock, and Spock says, you know, we're going to take this to hear sound, and but this magnifies it from to one to the fourth power. And I'm no mathematician, yeah. but isn't one to the fourth power still one? I'm pretty sure. Is yeah. it one to the one trillionth <laughs> power still one? That could be. <laughs> Last I checked, I think it is. I, you know, I, I don't consider I myself a math this, whiz, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that he and the scarecrow from the Wizard of Oz went to the same school. <laughs> well, I have to say, I don't know how you guys think about that whole fourth act, but that whole fourth act seems really rushed to me, uh, because for the first time in the episode, we get voiceovers from Kirk to gloss over some of the action we can't see yeah. on screen. And and frankly, the whole idea of, I'd never thought about this all those times I watched it when I was younger, but the problem is the computer is unreliable, right? But how are we going to solve the situation? By trusting the computer to pick up the <laughs> deck. <laughs> the very, so computer, the very computer, yes, you're right. It all sort of fell you. apart for that's me then the, at that point. But. That's brilliant, dude. <laughs> No, you know, it, you're absolutely right. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, like Chris alluded to, that, that this isn't one of those ones that immediately pops out as, oh, yeah, let, you know, let me dig out yeah. Court Marshall. That's a great episode. Once I start watching it, I'm like, yeah, this is a good one. But when when this first came up in the rotation, it, it wasn't one of the ones that, that naturally jumps out. And I think it's because that fourth act is pretty weak. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the thing that's always stood out to me in this episode is even from when I was a little kid, McCoy's using a friggin' microphone. Yeah. yeah. It's just I, microphone. I, I mean, they, they didn't put antenna on it. They didn't paint it green. They didn't put hair on it. They didn't make any effort to make it look futuristic or science fiction-y. It's a friggin' microphone. To be honest, go. though, they, did, they, do, they do describe it as a sound device, a which is exactly boy. what it is. <laughs> I'm like, yes, they are accurate. That is a sound device. It's called a microphone. <laughs> yeah, it's too bad the restoration team couldn't do something with that microphone. But uh... <laughs> it's a, it's, it's, you know, they should have ended it with a shot of Kirk down on the planet in a convertible driving by a bunch of girls going, Hey, good looking. We'll be back to pick you up later. With his Mr. <laughs> Space microphone. <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's that element. There's the heartbeat thing, which is just silly because every time they do something like that, I'm brought back to like Daredevil comics where he can, <laughs> you know, he's listening to people's heartbeats in New York City. I would think that the ambient noise would make you deaf. You the, know what I'm saying? Well, the, the thing about it is don't they have uh, don't they have equipment that 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 scans to tell Scanners, how many yes. life forms there are yes. on a yes, on that's. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's the shuttle. You know, that's the uh, yeah. why didn't they take the shuttlecraft down to rescue them stuck on the ice planet moment of this right. episode? You right. know, that's exactly what that you're not you. If you stop to think about it, that the entire episode completely that, falls that, apart. That about crushes it. Yeah. 
But it's made up for with two great things. You know, you, you get some really good roundhouses, you know, Kirk to, to fit his face, which is excellent. And then it has one of my absolute favorite lines from the original Star Trek series, which is, you know, you cut to that voiceover, and the first thing Kirk says is, beaten and sobbing, Ben can blah, blah, blah. And I, I heard that. Just, I couldn't stop laughing. Beaten and sobbing. He, did, he only implied by it, it, he should have really said beaten and beaten by me and sobbing. But it's just implied. But he, he does tend to narrate some of his log entries like he's a novelist, I guess, because it's this this plot device, which is generally a pretty good one to bring viewers up to speed, you know. But, um, but it sometimes it does sound very very uh, forced. <laughs> but I love it. It's full of great Kirk moments of him going, "Could I be wrong? No." I cannot be. <laughs> I am not but, wrong. But notice he there is a genuine moment of hesitation before he decides. No, I mean you know he's confident at the beginning, he's confident at the end. But there there there, there is that scene, and sh and this is what I talk about. I know I've talked with you guys about this before about the subtlety people don't give Shatner credit for. You know, in that first season, and that's why I love the first season so much. Kirk is, um, he he hides it well, but he has uh, a a lot. I think of of doubt. Or maybe not doubt, but he feels the burden of command in a way that I just don't think Shatner plays it the same way as the series wears on. That he does become sort of the the swaggering caricature that people make yeah. out Kirk to be. But he is not in these early episodes, and that's a prime moment where he's willing to think. Well, you know, maybe I. T but then he realizes, no, I am. You know, and it, he doesn't overdo it. It's not one of Shatner's handy moments. I, I I like that scene a lot for that reason. It shows us that Kirk is. Uh, he really, he really feels the burden of what he's doing, and it does take a special person to do it. He does, Absolutely. even to the point of saying, nothing is more important than my ship. And then I'm thinking, what about your crew? <laughs> I think, well, I thought that too he when he said that, but I think it's implied. Yeah, I think, I think the it's ship implied and the crew are one thing. about the crew. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, you know, I, I like that he charges down there. You know, he insists on going alone to confront Finney, and he takes him out and everything. But it's another problem for me in that in that fourth and final act when then it cuts to the voiceover and he's up in the Jeffrey's tube and, and instantly my first thought is, where's Scotty? Why is the captain doing this? You know, and I guess yeah, presumably Scotty beamed down with everybody else, but still it just, that's the moment where it kind is of snaps me out. Of, at all? No, he's not. No, he not, oh. neither him or Sula are in this I, one at all. I don't think since, since Kirk is a suspect in a trial, that he should be doing stuff like go, I'll go down and get the uh, the guy you know that's that's a, that you know I'm at odds with in this whole trial thing. Even though it appears that Kirk is right all the time, it could uh, be right. so, you know Kirk might have had the guy tied up out down there you know and has been torturing him you know with right. bare wires from the that's Jeffries too. Point. And he that's could go down there and just finish a guy off and go like, I had to kill him. He was going to kill me with that, that crescent wrench that we still use in our, in our uh, engineering. <laughs> it doesn't fit one piece of equipment. No, in maybe in the 2009 Star Trek, but not in, in this one. You know? No, that's a great point is that what if, you know, okay, they let him go because they think, okay, well, yeah, you, the we trial wasn't over, you know, the trial's not over. What if you're right? You're absolutely right. There's a completely different shift, you know, they're a completely different spin on this whole thing and Finney's hiding because he's afraid of Kirk because Kirk's been I don't know yelling at him or something or beating him or whatever beam up and so some Kirk, cops you know ship is crashing 
Kirk just goes, instead of going down to the engine room to confront Finney, he just goes down to the engine room and he's like, screw this, I'm out of here, you know? <laughs> yeah. And he's gone, they never see him again, you know? So, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, you never, you, you know, in, in the courtroom, it ain't over till it's over. So you don't have the suspects, you know, out investigating and, and mm-hmm. yeah, so... That I I you know that could have been I I mean just because they beamed everybody down, doesn't mean that you can't beam them back up again. You know that spot that you know, Spock can't go down in the train. Did Spock even leave? Spock left too, didn't he? No, he was there. Oh, he uh, was yeah, there. they could send Spock he down to the transporter man. room and beam up a few security guards and send them down to track down. Right. You know, and 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 what's Finney gonna do then? Finney was you know Finney was waiting for Kirk so he could do his whole like voiceover his voice it's so funny because his voiceover sounded so clean when he was off screen and like oh yeah. you know kirk blah 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 it was i had to like look him up because i thought he was the voice of balok because when i he first started talking i thought right. that's balok's voice it's not but it it sounds a lot like him but then when you see him in person he's all van geldered out and, right. <laughs> and another thing when when they went to the loony colony there Weren't they bragging about how nobody goes insane anymore? I mean, s- uh, somebody should wonder about the Enterprise and think maybe there's space asbestos in there because people <laughs> go loony a lot around the Enterprise and Kirk and stuff. You know, there's they, that how, there were like ten people at that colony or something, and like, and Kirk is just adding to them left and right. This was another, <laughs> you know, poor soul, poor tortured soul. I gotta say though, going back to what we were talking earlier about the the culture of Starfleet as personified by Commodore Stone, <laughs> I wonder if Finney doesn't have a point that they wouldn't forget. Yeah. One this, this Starfleet just if all you had was this one episode, you know, well this organization might not forget one mistake you made twenty years ago. They might really ride you for it the yeah. rest of your career. Yeah. So yeah, uh, it's a little disturbing from that point of view. Yeah, Kirk's moving up the rank, and look what he did to Khan. <laughs> that's a that's a bigger mistake than Finney's Finney's you know goof up, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's uh, there's some ambiguity there. <laughs> there is an a classic classic missed opportunity in this episode that Spock really should have been allowed to have his Vulcan leer with him when he took the witness stand, <laughs> because he sits down and he starts to tell a story. And the story starts with, if I had a hammer. I know. And he really should have said, I'd hammer in the morning, I'd hammer in the evening. Does he talk about a hammer? All over this land. <laughs> I don't know why they didn't go that direction. Oh. You knew where I was going with that, didn't you? I did, and like, I swallowed air the wrong way right at the beginning, and... Yeah, thanks. That was very painful, man. <laughs> I'd hammer out danger. I'd hammer out a warning. I mean, they could have turned this into the courtroom musical Star Trek episode. That would be awesome. <laughs> I'd hammer out love between my brother and my sister all <laughs> over this land. I've listened to that song too many times. Well, I do have a hammer. (laughs) (laughs) It's the hammer of freedom. (laughs) And I do have a bell. (laughs) It's the bell of justice. 
Justice for all of my brothers and sisters. All over the land. (laughs) That guy is deep, man. (laughs) The people in my office, of course, know that I'm a big Star Trek fan. And when I broke my leg a few years ago, that was one of the things they gave me as a uh, get well soon gift was this CD of... Shatner and Nimoy vintage. <laughs> people like I don't, I don't you, know, right? but made me feel better or made me feel worse. <laughs> I have like, to say I this. Was glad to hear it. <laughs> I have to say this. I I had a when when I was in college, we had a friend. Um, he was on the show, Mike Cross, and um, Scott knows him. He worked at this place called the Record Archive, and he basically mm-hmm. could get any record in the world, and he would just he was you know, would bring back all the celebrity records, you know, the Mae West records, just the most terrible things ever. It all started, there was a a compilation on Rhino called Golden Throats that had just a whole bunch of just the worst of all of them. And I think it had Mr. Tambourine Man by Shatner. And I think it had If I Had a Hammer by by Spock. And, And he eventually got all the Shatner and all the Leonard Nimoy albums. And, oh, my God, as... In the ways that they're terrible, you know, as Leonard Nimoy really isn't a singer or whatever, but they're still entertaining albums. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. the Shatner ones <laughs> are truly like just the most overblown, pretentious awesomeness, especially when you get away from the Mr. Tambourine Mans and the Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds yeah. and all, all the classics, and you get into the ones that were more like he took apart from a play and and mm-hmm. and got studio musicians to do canned music in the background it's just un it's just awesome you know it's just the, the when you know people talk about celebrities nowadays and their egos going haywire but it's been happening all <laughs> <laughs> all down the line and you know i i love those albums all over this land i was just you know somebody i i was listening to some podcast where they were enjoying the the um the inestimable joys of uh um the ballad of bilbo baggins yes (laughs) yes i put that one up on facebook every time nimoy's birthday rolls around (laughs) (laughs) i laugh but I kind of envy the guy. <laughs> he had the opportunity to do something sure. so horrible. <laughs> and 40 years later, people are still watching it, you know. Did you see, he was at, um, he made an appearance in Vulcan in Alberta, Canada. I think it's, the town is actually named Vulcan. I think I'm right on that. And uh, so he went to this convention there or some event there and somebody in the crowd asked him to sing it and he he warbled a few lines of it oh sure very good sport but yeah (laughs) that's the thing that's the thing about him is i could totally see that uh you know he he commits to it (laughs) no matter how goofy or or whatever he commits to it so it's it's still yeah (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I say we take a break, and we come back with the with the um, the next section, which will be the next generation measure of a man, where we'll 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 give that 
that one the same going over that we gave this one. Then we can compare and contrast uh, these two yeah. episodes where the meat comes in, and we can work Scott Gardner into a froth over robot <laughs> sentience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. You like how I sort of just faded into it, sort of like, yeah, well, we'll be getting to it, and then our robot's really alive. We'll be right back. <sighs> Well, if I had a hammer, I'd hammer in the morning, I'd hammer in the evening, all over this land, I'd hammer out danger, I'd hammer out a warning. I'd hammer out love between my brothers and my sisters all, all over this land Well, if I had a bell I'd ring it in the morning I'd ring it in the evening All over this land I'd ring out danger I'd ring out a warning I'd ring out love between my brothers and my sisters all over this land Well, if I had a song I'd sing it in the morning I'd sing it in the evening All over this land I'd sing out danger I'd sing out a warning I'd sing out love Between my brothers and my sisters All over this land Well, I have a hammer, and I have a bell, and I have a song, a song to sing all over this land. It's the hammer of justice. It's the bell of freedom. And the song is the song of love, love between all of my brothers and love between all of my sisters all over this land. Welcome back to Star Trek Monthly Monday, number 42. And uh, still with us for this episode is Mr. Gravitas himself, Mike Poteet. And Mike, um, you know, I, I, I wanted you in on this episode for, for a good number of reasons. For one, you're, you're a good friend and you're a great supporter of the show and we really appreciate you. And it's been far, far too long since we've had you on. But I know that you're also a, a huge Star Trek fan. Um, but also... I wanted you in on this for for you know the the philosophical angle. You know, there, there's a question that's raised right at the end of this episode that uh, I, I look forward to us getting to. That I, I think essentially cuts to the quick. You know, it right. cuts right to the I essence so of too. the episode. You know, does data have a soul? And I can't think of anybody more qualified to discuss and and ultimately judge such a such a thing you know given the arguments that uh, that we're going uh -huh. to present uh, you know both for and against the conclusions drawn at the end of the episode 
than you know an, an ordained minister such as yourself. So <laughs> you're well, just. I appreciate, you're, you're... I appreciate you having me on for all those reasons. I don't know <laughs> if I'm going to render a definitive judgment on that, but we'll certainly talk about it. <laughs> so, Your Holiness. <laughs> <laughs> so, Your Most Worshipfulness. <laughs> Well, you know, oh, you know, in my tradition, ordination is purely functional. It doesn't make the person any holier than anybody else. So, so that uh, that means you're a virgin, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which no, no, doesn't no, differentiate <laughs> you from many of our other, fa- yeah, <laughs> other <laughs> listeners. <laughs> oh, that was At wrong. least you have an excuse, man. And right All here. Right. <clears throat> <clears throat> So measure of a man. <laughs> Should we open in prayer? God, it's so oh, it's, it's amazing man. that any of our guests ever come back, man. Oh uh, yeah, ever. after you. Oh my God. Next time on Star Trek: The Next Generation. It's unjustified. It's unfair. He has rights. A Starfleet experiment threatens to dismantle data for android research. And what's at stake? My very life. No, Captain Picard is Data's last hope for survival. What is he? A machine. And now a man will shut it off. Objection. On Star Trek, The Next Generation. <clears throat> so Measure of Man. All right, so this is from, this is a synopsis from the uh, Star Trek, <laughs> The Next Generation companion, which... Uh, I have my criticisms of, but you know what? It's got an edge over the Star Trek compendium because it has actual air dates. Well, it sounds so, better, too, the companion. Yeah, it, it sounds <laughs> like an episode of Star it, Trek. It does, actually. So this one originally aired the week of February 13th, 1989. And the uh, synopsis on this one is, Data's rights as a sentient being are questioned when Commander Bruce Maddox, a, a cyberneticist, wants to disassemble the android and make duplicates for Starfleet. When Maddox seems uncertain of his ability to reassemble data, the Enterprise second officer refuses to submit to his experiment and resigns from Starfleet. But that resignation is made moot when Maddox gets a ruling that the android is Starfleet property under the 300-year-old law. What? Where that? Where'd they draw that from? I never heard nothing mentioned, about no three hundred year uh, old law. They mentioned something, the Acts of Cumberland. So there's. Oh, uh, okay. I don't know if they mentioned the date, but. Oh, uh, okay. Picard is ready to tackle that decision in a court of law, but the insufficient legal staff at this new starbase forces Riker to serve as both prosecutor and defender. What? That's what. <laughs> what? what? No, that's not right. <laughs> On top of that, the base's judge advocate general, Captain Philippa, I don't know how you pronounce this last name, I'm going to skip it, is an old flame of Picard whose zeal in handling the USS Stargazer inquiry years before split them up. Riker warned uh, to do his best or see summary judgment in Maddox's favor dramatically proves that his second officer is just a machine by removing one of Data's arms and then turning him off completely. Picard has all but conceded until Guinan helps him see that Maddox's plan for an army of androids without rights would amount to slavery. Confident again, Picard successfully argues that all beings are created but not owned by their creator. Later, he and... Is it Louvis? Is that how you pronounce Le her name? Lavoie. Okay, okay, Lavoie. 
agree yeah. to a dinner date while Data assuages Riker's guilt for taking part in the prosecution's case. It's not a bad synopsis. I question some of the facts in the uh, thing, but it's, it's not as dry as the one for court-martial. <laughs> yeah. So, uh... I'm gonna I'm gonna keep myself in reserve to last on, on this. what you guys got on court martial, or excuse me on measure of a man rather. My first note is poker. What happened to Fizbin? <laughs> is this the first time we see the poker game on the seventeenth? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It is, yeah. and it's also uh, th this in my mind makes uh, O'Brien officially part of the family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, nice, I like that. I like it a lot. Mm-hmm. O'Brien's line almost reminds me of something before O'Brien showed up that they would have had Jordy say, you know, this is my lucky seat, Data, or or, uh, or Riker, perhaps, you know. Right. But I thought that was a great way to to begin the episode with the poker game where you see Data learning, you know, about poker face and bluffing and, and all that. And, and, you know, you get the humor of the whole crew just like, oh, we got a, a pigeon to pluck here, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. and, and him not getting it. And then everybody just taking him for a ride. But it's the, the whole it's just a nice little scene. Then before they go into the, you know, theme music, you have the weirdest one of the weirdest shot scenes. It's like this abrupt scene when oh. when you know the his mysterious lady from his past shows up it's basically like it cuts to picard sitting in a chair at a table with like without a drink like just like he's placed at a table <laughs> and he looks up and he's like oh my god it's you and <laughs> yeah. it's just like hi we used to have sex and he's like i know and he's like good to, you know good to see you and then it's like and then it's like space the final frontier it's like yeah that yeah. it's just so you know it, it was so abrupt and had no feel or flow or or resonance to it it was just sort of like oh we got to we got to introduce this character and her relation to Picard before we get to the credits you know and I don't know about, about you guys, but I don't sense any chemistry between the two. I, I don't buy the. I was just the, thinking that same the backstory. Thing. I mean, I accept it for the get through the episode, but I don't think. Uh, I get the feeling. Play it very well. I got the feeling that she enjoyed the friction between t the two of them, so, so to speak. The, uh, and was like, it, I I got the impression that it was one of those things where the two of them hooked up. And she thought it was great, and Picard was like, never, oh, never again. Right, right. Yeah, I <laughs> oh, was just well. thinking that same thing is that, you know, I buy her infatuation with him. He seems totally yeah. disinterested with her, so I, I almost get sort of a uh, crazy ex-girlfriend vibe off of the whole thing, you know? Like, off he just card. doesn't want anything more to do with her. But yeah. I, I'll tell you what, you know, knowing Picard, I actually give her more benefit of the doubt than him as, as who the crazy person is, <laughs> is you know, who's who this, who who's the problem was in the relationship or whatever it was, you know, I would, I would more likely think it was Picard. Well, the scary part of it is for me is that, uh, I'm sitting there while I'm watching this, you know, again with both my kids and, and Scotty said something about, I forget how he worded it, but essentially the, the gist of it was, is that why would Picard be into her? She's old at the same exact moment. I had just been thinking to myself, she's kind of hot. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, especially if, if part or the major part of the reason they're no longer together is that she did her job 
prosecuting him. I mean, he says he accuses her of enjoying it, but uh, and I, I guess I not to get too much into the compare and contrast with the with court martial, but here we have a, a strong, independent woman doing her job, irrespective of personal feeling, and Picard's not okay with that. No, that's uh, a, another, in a way that Kirk was. You an, know? Another example of the quote-unquote professionalism of Starfleet. It, in I both, know, both I of these, the, I noticed. Has some. <laughs> I noticed there's people having really basic issues. <laughs> With yeah. the idea of a prosecuting attorney in, in a legal <laughs> system, and they're supposed to be these people, you know, we're we're objective and <laughs> and everything, and then they get and put in the position of being a prosecuting attorney, and they're like, I, you know, I can't do this, you know, blah blah blah. It's like no, that's it's part of the, you know, they're always talking about doing the, you know, working within their their philosophy and their yeah. their setup and stuff. So, I mean, I understand that I. Like when people are like, how the hell can that lawyer represent that that serial killer? You know, it's like, well, right. somebody has to, you know, everybody gets a lawyer. So somebody's got to be his lawyer. It's not the lawyers going like, I love getting serial killers off because I love how they kill everybody. It's, you know, it's it's a basic concept of the legal system, you know. And, yeah. you know, and, and here you have Riker, who's this like renaissance man, sort of free free thinker guy. And he's just like you know consumed with guilt over what a good job he did and it's he's like a high school student in a english class where you're assigned a topic to argue yes but teacher i don't believe that you know yeah oh that 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 one scene with Riker just makes me cringe like oh come on you're you're a grown man in the supposedly as you say enlightened intellectual society and that that wants to find the truth yeah, Picard makes that great speech at the end about the courtroom is a crucible. So he understands, in theory, why we have an adversarial legal system. But, <laughs> yeah, I agree with what you said about the, when it comes right down to it, he's, he's not comfortable with it. <laughs> or at least not with this, this prosecutor, I guess. And, and, and then at the end of each episode, you know, Kirk's making out with, with his prosecuting attorney. and yeah, He doesn't mind that a real Shaw prosecuted him. <laughs> yeah, and, and Picard is taking her up on that dinner. And and I guess giving out a mercy dinner, quote unquote. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, um, I the know what's gonna star- make Scott happy at the beginning. I just want to load up the happy Scott stuff. No Deanna Troy and no Wesley Crusher. There is a brief Wesley. bit of Wesley, he's but he's just uh, sitting there. He's just reserved, sitting there looking yeah. over his shoulder and stuff. There's he's not involved in the story. He tells Data how to open presents. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. And Deanna is present in that scene, but I don't think she has a speaking line in this. Yeah, I don't peep in this whole episode. Yeah, which is fine. She can be there. Just you know, she can be there. I just don't want to have her open her mouth. <laughs> I'm sort of surprised the writers didn't feel some sense of because everybody's feeling so much angst in this episode. You right. Know? It seems like a logical place to have Troy attempt to do some counseling, but uh, yeah, yeah at, at a God. completely inappropriate time to come in and say something stupid to Riker. Like I, you know, I sense that you're under a lot of stress with this thing. With <laughs> yes. I no shit, Deanna. I yeah, thanks. <laughs> Captain, you, <laughs> Captain, I, I sense that you slept with the prosecuting attorney and or I, you slept with your counselor and did not enjoy it. Oh, is she in the room? I'm sorry. Yeah. And speaking of the writing, 21st century JAG office. Well, you know, that's that's one of the homages to court-martial. 
a real Shaw specifically says she's with the Judge Advocate General Office. Yeah, it's a little slower. Jag Office. And then later called called Jag Officer. All right. I was just like... I thought you were raising a serious... (laughs) No, I was was saying writers, writers, you should proofread this stuff. As soon as I heard that, it just you know you got the writers. The writers have to have a little Beavis and Butthead in their brain to find that stuff. You know where they're like, "Well, about twenty first century Jack Officer." Cut to Wesley at one point here. See Wesley just snickering, going. Every time they said Jack Officer, it's like. You find something funny, Ensign Crusher? No, sir. I'm, I'm perfectly happy with the Jack Officer, sir. Yeah. Well, um, I, and, <laughs> and you know, an- another thing that pisses me off about Starfleet is Starfleet <laughs> is just like this breeding ground for pompous asses that, you know, it's just like every time there's some new guy coming from Starfleet, he's just, they're just always, it, it, it it's got to be. It's either the future, everybody's like that in the future, or, you know, where do these people come from, especially on the next generation? This guy is just on the edge of smarmy. It's it's huh. it's, it's funny. When he walks on the bridge, and, and it's funny, they keep giving little clues. Data, you can see Data's kind of holds a grudge on this guy from from their past. You can see Data sees him and is just like, oh, it's him. Which is some evidence going into my argument further on. I'm one by one building my argument. You can can feel people staring at you. So, you know, I I, I remembered Maddox that way, the way you've described him. But watching the episode again, I found it a little bit more nuanced performance than I remembered. Well, because Uh, I was glad of. I thought, here's a guy who he's passionate about his work and he has an idea and he's people are getting in his way and you know it's sort of whiny and what about my right to see my dream you know but <laughs> but you know you can see people can sympathize with that we've all been in positions where we really want to do something and for whatever reason we can't uh you know and i don't think he's out to to be a bad guy I, so well i you know it's it, it's funny because and and you know it that he it might be his constant referral to data is it that that does it you know because it's just sort of a it's it's a weird purposeful way that he does it and i don't know if that's just because that's the way they wrote it and... i don't think it is I, I i remember it that way because as a you know as a teenager watching the show i was all rooting for data all the time and, oh man calling him it and i remember when pulaski came in in the first episode of the second season and said lots of the same things i was oh i hate dr pulaski blah, 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 blah. but uh but watching it again he's just I think I don't think Maddox hits that word with any special emphasis or anything. I think that's just uh, I, I think it, it works as an expression of what he, where he's at and what he's thinking. You know, it just occurred to me the way you just described Maddox that they possibly missed a great opportunity that, you know, given the motivations and the way that you just explained that character, he potentially could have been a supervillain. And it would have been interesting to to team Maddox uh-huh. up with Lore at some point. Oh, yeah. You know, 
Oh. I mean, that there there could have been some really good story potential there. I think it's to their credit, though, that they didn't make him out to be a villain. You know, I think that's... No, that's... no, I agree. Yeah. Well, it's very Star Trekky. You know, everybody at the end sort of gets it. You know, everybody gets everybody's point of view and, and shakes hands and has a little hug and off they go, you know. <laughs> and he refers to Data as him and everybody's yeah. le learned a lesson. And Yeah. <laughs> I do wish Pulaski had been given more to do in this episode, given the way her feelings toward Data change. You know, that first episode, she scoffs at how he could possibly have a preference the way his name is pronounced. And then by the end of the season, not to spoil too much, but she's cheering him on to, to bust him up. That opponent is in his game, you know? Um, right. So, uh, At the very least, I think she should have been present in the courtroom. You know, yeah, I think she could have been called as a witness for, for Maddox, you know? she's a, Well, I was thinking, my note is, I would have wanted her to be Data's defense. Like, I would have... I would have fiddled with the Starfleet regulations in the mm. script to have it be the medical officer for some reason in in this matter because mm. she had been such a, like, you know, Data's just a machine, and then she was forced to prove otherwise. So huh. that that would have made it very interesting for the her character, is, is too. Is he alive? <laughs> yeah. Right, and, 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 having, and having Riker, who's of the opposite opinion... You know, having to do the 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 both of them having to prove the opposite would have been very. I like that would have idea. Been very interesting, I I thought, but yeah. I like was, that idea a lot. I think you know two other possible uses for her in this episode is that, you know, what if you know like court martial before it? What if the judgment had been up to a tribunal and have Pulaski be oh, one of good. the serving officers that, that as part of the tribunal? You know, or simply, you know, once again, just simply an observer. But this time she's filling the role of audience in the episode. You know, for yeah. people like me that might go into the episode thinking, you know, and listening to Maddox's argument and going right on, preach it, brother. But by the end of the episode, you're doubting yourself. You know, you're, yeah. you're, you've listened to the evidence and you're going, you know, they, they make a compelling argument, you know. Yeah, that would so, have been good. Yeah. I like that. One way or the other, I agree. I think her, her character was kind of wasted in this episode. It's, I wonder it's if it's a function of the fact that this is very early in the second season and and they may not have known they wouldn't have Crusher around. Or And I know, I don't know the details, but I know from reading uh, Harlan Ellison's uh, book on the city on the edge of forever, uh, Melinda Snodgrass, who wrote this episode, contributes a foreword. And she says, you know, Harlan experienced what I would experience 20 years later when my episode was... She doesn't say mangled or something, but she gives the impression and doesn't tell the tale that, that it wasn't uh, what she that wrote. Is, that it, that, yeah, that that she came like yay close to wanting her name taken off or something. So, wow, which is funny because it won her a, it won her a permanent spot a story editor, didn't it, for the series? And, something uh, like that, yeah. And it's one of the, I think, still one of the most generally well liked episodes in the series. So, yeah. Um, so I don't know what the details are behind the scenes of what got I, changed, but. I would love to know because that plays heavily into a theory that I have because my main complaint with this episode, and I don't know if we're ready to get to jump straight to that or not, but it essentially is that halfway through the, or actually about three quarters through the episode, the argument suddenly changes and it's done so subtly that you don't really notice it. I think until subsequent rewatches. And I've seen this episode a zillion times. So it's one of those things where when, when you suddenly realize it, it's, it's, it's kind of jarring that you realize, wait a minute, weren't we talking about this? And mm -hmm. now we're talking about this. And I, I wonder if maybe that's 
you know, the, the change, the deviation from her script. You know what I mean? Because it is essentially two different arguments. Do you want to go ahead and spell out how the argument changes? Yeah, might as well. Yeah, let's might as well get into it. Well, for me, you know, it's all about, you know, the, the essential question in this episode is, you know, it's it's the subject of, you know, is Data a machine? Is he alive and all that? And they're tackling that subject. And I think that pretty conclusively, given what, what Riker does and everything and the way the episode's going, I think it's pretty conclusively proved And everybody in that courtroom and even the audience pretty much feels like, well, that's a done deal. We proved the case. He's just a machine. And then there's the little moment where Picard, you know, sulks and goes to 10 forward and has the little moment with, with um, Guinan. Now, I like those characters. I like the concept of 10 Forward. I love the character of Guinan. This episode, it makes me nuts because she's the one that puts the whole bug in his ear about the slavery thing. And, you know, I'll be the first one to stand up and testify. Yeah, slavery is horrible. Let's not do that. Let's not make that mistake again, humanity. But at the same rate, that is not what we're talking about. Different issues. No, but you know, she, she does it as a... She does it as a way, like a springboard for Picard. She does that to send him in a in a different direction of how he was thinking about it. Right, and, and it's a little forced, but she's she's basically you know not say you know not spelling out that they're going to be slaves, but she's but she is saying this could you know this is more important than even data. This could set a precedent. That could end up, you know, with an army of Data's, you know, mining, you know, spice in Kessel or whatever, you know. Right, <laughs> right. And, well, see, that's my point exactly is that, you know, you, you said that she kind of, I forget how you worded it, but she essentially derails Picard into thinking about something. Well, no, I, I will submit that it, she derails the entire episode because not only does Picard change his thinking, then he goes into the, the courtroom and effectively changes the thinking of everyone sitting in that courtroom and even the audience watching the show. You, you're so engrossed in what is really a solid and well-written and well-acted episode that I think that you, you completely miss that, wait a minute, we just completely shifted gears and changed arguments right in the middle, you know, right in midstream. Because the argument isn't about, you know, slavery. The argument is about data and what is he at his base? And at his base, he's a machine constructed by human beings for a specific, yeah, I can't even talk, specific purpose. That is what all androids and robots are constructed for, to serve man. That is their function. That's exactly why we create machines. Well, I would take issue with that that was data's function. Um, I don't know, and I haven't looked at some of the later data episodes recently, but my impression and my remembrance is that in lots of the later data episodes, and even maybe so some before this, data was created with the capability to be self-determining and to evolve and to grow, right? Right. I mean, so he wasn't created just to be, I mean, Riker makes that argument. He's a machine created to serve the interests of, of a human being. And I, I, I guess I have to grant that that's part of it. But Doctor Soong seems, I mean, he's going to plan on giving him an emotion chip. Uh, he, he seems to be that part of Data's purpose was to be um, trying to I be said, a sentient life form. Yeah. So he was, he was trying to. He was playing God. He was trying to create a, a humanoid life form that that would would not just 
not just ape humanity, right. but sort of function like it. He was trying to basically map out, you know, the the basic things that 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 make us alive, and then recreate them w w through man-made things. That that to me gets into a, a a whole that puts a whole different spin on the episode because that gets into an area that the episode never even addressed i, right. I did think about it a lot though right. is that you know how could they possibly call data this the property of starfleet when they found him they I, didn't yeah. create well that's, right. no, that starfleet that created him he was found and they just kind of, you know, I don't think I don't think I don't think his status as a being or his soul are the issue at all. It's just like they found data. Data joined Starfleet. Data yeah. joined Starfleet. He went to Starfleet Academy. He learned, you know, he worked his way up through the ranks. When you do that, you, you know, did Star where's his where's Starfleet's receipt for data if they own him? You know, who did they buy right. him from? You yeah. know, that that whole thing of where start that's where I if I was approaching this, I would not, you know, and at the end of this, you know, somebody was, you know, saying, oh, the case was going in delving into metaphysics and whether or not he had a soul. And I'm like, no, it really it really didn't. And it, and it really needn't do that to to prove that this guy shouldn't potentially screw up data by. You're taking them apart it's not even that it's it's i i don't think i think they could have argued that he's not starfleet's property you, you uh, captain kirk wasn't starfleet's property you know i mean data wasn't found in a junk pile and they were like all right you belong to starfleet now here you are on the bridge no he he's he's got a rank he's got awards for things he's done in the past, he's an he's done everything that any other being would have to do to be in his position. You would think that it would be just an open and shut case that you know you gotta you gotta you gotta if if he's going to earn the rights of any other officer on the Enterprise, you have to extend those rights to him, even if he. Even if he was like an automaton, even if he didn't have his personality and, you know, all those things that made the crew, you know, think of him as data and stuff. I I, I just, you know, the whole like we're going to argue over the existence of his soul. They, it makes really good TV, but I don't think, you know, that was the the way to approach it. And I don't think they really approached it and and prove that and as far as for the like proving that he was a machine i i i i bring to the stand luke skywalker and mr spock <laughs> comes up to luke skywalker and says will you give me your hand please i'm sorry and takes luke skywalker's hand out and shows everybody his mechanical hand and then goes over and gives him a vulcan nerve pinch and he goes unconscious he goes look i just turned him off <laughs> same you know <coughs> <clears throat> and and in a way the exact same thing has happened as what happens to data you know you can turn a human off too it's called putting a bullet in their brain or knocking them out or whatever but or you know or or giving them gas or or however but you're doing you're you're basically doing the same thing and i what i love is picard actually sort of brings up a sort of space turing test you know of of you know how can you tell the difference between a living being and data you know well data yeah. does this and data does, you know 
the the Turing test was like I think it was a text only test when it was developed. Mm-hmm. It might have been in like the forties or something like that, but it was basically if you had somebody in a room ta- and you were typing back and forth with a computer and a real person, and if you couldn't tell the difference between whether you were talking to a person or a computer, then that computer would sort of pass a test for for consci- not consciousness as much as intelligence. And, and, and Picard was sort of doing that, and I thought his arguments were very good but almost unnecessary, you know? Um, it would have made for a very dry episode of The Next Generation if they'd followed my my lead, but um, I don't know. Maybe there's a plot in Starfleet that, they, you know, like in episode two where they want their army of Datas, so they're trying to push it through and, and all that. But, you know, I mean, to me, if Data can recognize that he has rights <laughs> if if you create something that could actually figure out that it has rights or that it should have rights or that it could have rights or what rights are then it's probably pretty much sentient you know what i mean i mean there's just so much evidence of data data sentience and what is sentience would be like compared to human sentience if you could get inside his brain would probably be very different and and all that but you know it's very next generation to go who's to say you know i think there's a vast difference between you know life and a simulation of life i mean because data is he's constructed and he's programmed that's not the same thing as being alive you know as being born and and growing i mean the, the you know well, the thing I mean, you know, the a, first thing in the and the criteria of sentience was intelligent, and Picard asks Maddox, you know, is Data intelligent? He's oh yes, yes, absolutely. No, he is a walking library, you know, library of information that doesn't make him intelligence. Mm, intelligence but, is a completely different. Intelligence thing. is is processing that information outside of like, he can, you, you know, um, oh, what do you call it? an algorithm? You know, if 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 data only had a set number of algorithms to deal with stuff, then okay. But data adapts and figures things out, and learns nuances and changes his algorithms to adjust with his life. And even if those algorithms are, are algorithms that are made to change themselves, what's to differentiate that from the way your brain functions? Uh, you know, I mean, your body and your brain are functioning on a bunch of algorithms that tell your heartbeat how many times to pump and, and, and whatever the mechanism is to, you know, whether it's electrical impulses in your body or a, or a computer doing electrical impulses on a chip instead of neurons. You know, that's where that's the area you're going to go into with robots, you know, is when does it get to a point where a simulation starts doing the exact same things that our that our bodies are and that begs the question of of what the you know what the nature of the soul is which is sort of where i guess they guess maybe thought that this had to go but you know if it, if it was an examination of data's soul it gave it a really short shrift you know as far as that goes 
but I don't know. I would I would argue, you know, it's the and you know, and hey man, what if we're living in the matrix right now and you're just a computer program that doesn't know oh, it's a computer start. program, dude? <laughs> but you know, I, I I see exactly what you're saying. And, you know, one of the things that occurred to me while watching this episode was, you know, the, the question posed right at the beginning of AI, which is a movie that I, I really, really like a lot. Mm. You know, if you can create a machine that thinks and feels, then what is our obligation to that machine as a society, mm. you know, to, to treat it and take care of it? But I don't know. Th these are just some of the notes that I took on this episode was that, you know, and again, a lot of this comes from the latter half of the episode, you know, after with, with, with Guinan's input, you know, she says, right. You know, she's got the line about there being dis disposable creatures. Data's not a creature. He's a machine that first and foremost, that's the thing that annoys me about this is that she instantly jumps to the end of the argument and, and it's already decided, Oh, okay. He's a, no, it's not. That was the issue to begin with. And it's not decided yet. So, all right. And then she says, you know, on that question of, you know, what is our obligation? You know, she starts making the case about, you know, building a whole race of these things and, you know, to serve man and to do this dangerous work and all that sort of thing. And she has the line, you don't have to think about how they feel. They don't feel. Data doesn't have emotions. And it bugs me a lot in this episode, as much as I really enjoy this, Data is overly sentimental in this episode, bordering on emotional. He's actually but, at one of his most emotional points in this episode. And that bugs me because he should be a little more stiff and robotic in this episode. And I think he's so, played that way so that you, you, you know, making Maddox's point is that just because he looks human they're trying harder. If he was a box on wheels, they wouldn't try quite this. I, I have to kind of agree with that point to a certain degree. And so I think whether intentional or not, Data's humanity is played up at a higher degree in this level so that you sympathize that much more. Because then the point is made, you know, Picard asks Maddox, you know, do you even like Commander Data? What ultimately, what the hell does that have to do with anything, whether he likes him or not? You know. Well, so just so I'm clear, though, on where where you're coming from, Scott. So, do you think Data is being played dramatically inconsistently with how Brent Spiner has played him in the episodes up to this point, or or is the behavior he demonstrates in this episode, the sentimentality and and all that, consistent with how the character has been portrayed? for the first season and, and a half, wherever we are at this point. It's hard to answer that question because data does transition quite a bit. And a lot of it happens in this season because in the, you know, in the first season, in the beginning, he was much more mechanical. He was much yeah. more like one of the recorders from Marvel comics. You know, he, he said things like query before he asked a question yeah. or, you know, statement yeah. before he said something, they've largely dropped that sort of thing. Yeah. And so there's a lot of episodes where data is just a guy walking around that looks like a mime, you know, he, he, he doesn't seem exceedingly mechanical. And so this to me is one of those episodes that's kind of in flux, you know, where, where they were working towards a, a less stiff and robotic data I won't say he's inconsistent, but I do think that he's definitely played a little more 
not necessarily emotional, but just a little more sentimental. I mean, the the thing with him packing right. the picture of of Tasha and things like that. I mean, and he's doing that while he's that's, alone. That's not for the benefit of anybody right. seeing him. Exactly. He's, he's, he's thinking about her. He's he's musing, and I think he has subroutines that that make him examine his life and examine and i i think he has his brain is you know i think his brain was probably designed to put meaning to things you know the the point i'm trying to make is that i've never given one second of thought to how my car feels about having to haul my ass to work every day or how the toaster feels when you know i ask it to brown bread but if you could prove to me that those machines had feelings, genuine human emotions that, you know, needed to be nurtured and fed, that changes the, the, the you know, that changes the whole view for me personally. Data was supposed to be devoid of emotions. That was supposed to be one of his basic, I don't know if you call it failings, but that, you know, much like Edward Scissorhands, he wasn't finished yet. You know, he he well, he you don't, just as, you know we hadn't gotten to that point where he had been given the emotion ship. It, it was that last little piece that he needed that he's never going to get because you know, as, at least I, I'm I'm trying to remember where we are in the storyline here. You don't need What's emotion better? to be alive, though, as Vulcans. But I'm not talking about out. the alive thing now. I'm talking about you know the 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 supposition of. You know, the, the whole slavery issue, you know, because that's where this whole oh. episode jumps to is the whole slavery thing. And, you know, they make the point about, you know, you know, are you prepared to condemn them, you know, to, to servitude and slavery? Well, yeah, dude, if they're freaking machines and I built them to go into a dangerous situation or go mine spice on Kessel, then, yeah, I got no problem with making a whole damn race of them and sending them into the mines. However, if they think and feel you know, like people, that's different. You know, I mean, yeah, then you do have to take their basic welfare into consideration. Well, what, so, if they, yes, what if they that's... just what if they just think like people and don't quite feel like people? I, I view data as almost like some of the people I've met with severe like Asperger's or mild autism where they, see, they... now you're applying a human aspect to a machine. Well, yeah, but it's it's almost because it's a machine modeled after a a, a human brain. So Noonien Singh was probably I, like, all right, I got the parts that say, OK, you know, we got to do this and do this. But the emotion parts a lot harder and, you know, we'll keep the emotion chip for later. But and, I think even even I mean, I think the thing about your your car and the, your toaster, they were not designed to feel. And so if we neither was data. And, well, well, but he was, as I said earlier, I think he was designed to be self-determining and to to grow and evolve. And and once you've created something that has that capacity, you're sort of setting it free and to see what happens. And you have to give it that level of, of freedom and independence. To, and if that somehow emerges in something like emotion, even if the emotion chip hasn't been installed and you didn't intend for it to have emotion, if you've determined, if you've created it to be anything more than just a mechanism, if you've created it to be something that is capable of of, of shaping itself and, and determining its own, you see, I I didn't status. look at it as like Data's soul being on trial as much as Data was, or Data not trying to like 
defend his soul or prove his soul or whatever. He was he was arguing for his his data, not his humanity or anything like that. I I got I got the Im- impression that it's like when when data started out and you know, I'm sure it's more of a like script tweaking, but you could write it off to being like well, he's not as stiff and robotic now because he's been picking up more from this crew and he's got like Riker and and um, Wesley and Jordy all like really interested in him and working on explaining humanity, you know, more than willing to tell him how to be human and what humans do and all that. And he's picking up more stuff and the the getting taken apart by this guy who he's scene doesn't really know what he's doing he's taking him apart more because he doesn't know what he's doing and he's gonna try to glean it out of it and he's like thinking well you know if this guy takes me apart and screws it up all you know all they can bring me back awake but I'm, he's gonna be back to that robot before and any and a lot of what was there that was starting to actually build a personality and you know what is a personality you know, but what's p- other people perceive of it around yeah, you? Yeah, that's you an know? important point, Chris, because that's what whether or not Maddox or anybody likes data has to do with it. Because we cannot be ourselves in complete isolation. We are we we become who we are by virtue of our interaction with others, at least to some degree. Um, so so I think that. I think those interactions are are uh, encouraging data along that path of self-realization, self-determination, and some of it's somehow coming out of him himself. Like I think about his reaction to Tasha's funeral in the first season. He's, he remains behind basically thinking how much he's going to miss her. He doesn't use that language because it's emotional language. And I think Scott's point's very good that he's, and I remember when they announced Next Generation and that one of the principal characters was a, a robot i was so uh, oh come on where are you going to get any emotion out of that but uh <laughs> but we see that, that that this this creation and he is a creation um uh has this as part of his the way he functions is to to grow and to change and evolve and i also think you've both mentioned it and it's an important point that that he came from outside starfleet and the federation he you know he so i think that that I think I think in some ways the question of a soul, while interesting, is beside the point. Right, right. Because, because and I listened very carefully to what Captain Lavoie says at the beginning of the hearing. The purpose of this hearing is to determine the legal status of of data, and and so I think if I think that fact that he's he, that he's not from within a creation of a Starfleet laboratory. Um, I think her ruling at the end is fundamentally a sound one because she doesn't attempt to say whether he not has a soul. It's, she says, "I don't know, but I do know he has rights—the right to choose—and I think that's that the property of that. Of you know, somebody. whatever he may be, alive, not alive, feeling, not feeling, sentient, not—you know—there's enough experiential evidence of him in everybody's relationships with him that something's there and it needs to be protected. Um, and I think that's a very noble view of Starfleet and the Federation that even without fully understanding what or who Data is, they're going to afford him the same legal protection as human beings. Um, so, I look well at said. it like if it can stand up in court 
and articulate its, you know, its point, then, it, it, yeah, it must have, so, you know, if, if something is sentient enough to say, this is why I think I, I should have these rights and all that, then, you know, you're, you're not dealing with a strict, you know, like that old program Eliza that has a bunch of phrase or or like the right. term the Terminator where it puts what a, you say yeah <laughs> and it throws back what you say and a combination of a whole bunch of different things it can choose off a palette to put together and like to try to get the right answer or whatever you know data data is uh, uh, not you know I mean a lot of the function of his job is coming up with ideas and problem solving you know. And which he does, and, and he I comes think up Matt with says specifically that he wants that. So he's acknowledging, right. even in his desire to do this, that Data is capable of something more than just being a machine. I also wonder: Does Starfleet not have drone robots already that can go into dangerous situations? And yeah, I was gonna you know. say if they have at least the schematic of Data's body, yeah, they could they could make drone robots that. But you know, I mean. The, the, with a whole bunch of datas, you could have the drone robots like build you a whole civiliz you know, mine a planet, terraform it, and build you a whole civilization, and come there, and they'll take your slippers when you get there, you know. So, I yeah, I was I was wondering about that because they were building him up to have that sinister purpose of you know building this this robot army, but then at the end, when you realize, ah, hey, he's not such a bad guy. You know what it is? I figured it out what makes me want to punch that guy in the face. It's it's when he came into Data's room and just started poking through his shit. And not even <laughs> thinking of Data, I I think of it, you know, I personalize it too much, but if somebody did that to me, they would, you know, I would have been like leaping out of the closet like Kato with a baseball bat just like and Data is kind of pissed off. He 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 even sort of articulates his annoyance with the guy, and and chides him. But um, you know, I mean, they kept putting all through this the all those little, all those little the clues, you know, of. of I do think Data Scott's got a good things. point though that, that that I hadn't thought of it that way. That that this episode really ramps that up a lot, mm -hmm. and and I'm sure that's to serve the. Yeah, they and got Scott, I hope you'll talk about something you mentioned on the forum once. You you brought in B four from Nemesis. Um, yeah, that was. Could you talk was, about that? Because I thought that was a pretty interesting. That take. was kind of my my ace in the hole in this episode. But before I jump to that, my oh, my oh, other I thing is that <laughs> I, I just wanted Scott's to got uh, an ace in the hole. <laughs> I, I just wanted to say because I, I I meant to preface this whole discussion with you know i like data you know he's one of my favorite characters from this series i got nothing against him yeah and but i don't so, mind sending don't... him off to the spice mines of kessel <laughs> well, no no it's not even that is that i i myself find myself kind of drawing the same conclusion as the jag officer in this episode is that i'm not <laughs> sure you know i'm really i don't have a solid conclusion it's just that i do side much more heavily with Maddox's argument, mm -hmm. but only to a point, mm -hmm. you know, because I'll tell you, one of the, the, the most painful things in this genre for me to have ever watched was when R2 got disassembled in Clone Wars. That was mm -hmm. hard to watch because I like R2. I don't mm -hmm. consider R2 a person, mm -hmm. but I, it was hard to watch. 
Data's kind of the same thing. I, I do consider him at the end of the day, he's simply a machine. Yeah, he looks he's, like a person. He's not yes, like he's a toaster. Very... He's more like a car that you really love. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Going to the crusher, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I've had that reaction. I mean, I have had cars that you know they yeah. they just they reached the end of their life. They weren't worth fixing, and they yeah they went to the crusher. And, and, and yeah, sometimes you got an old later, you, yeah. Yeah, sometimes years later, you'll find yourself, you know, flipping through an old photo album and going, God, I love that car. Mm -hmm. But you're applying a human emotion to an inanimate object, you know, and data is not exactly inanimate. But to my the way I look at things, he's just he is what he is. He's a machine. He was constructed. Yeah, he looks like a person. He acts like a person. He's very likable and very personable. But at the end of the day, he's just a machine. And I think that. I feel very justified and borne out in that conclusion at the end of the day by events from Nemesis and beyond because Data dies in Nemesis. Spoiler, and I know this is jumping years ahead in our narrative. You know, we've been fairly spoiler free up till now. But, you know, I don't think it's any big secret either. No. You know, Data got blowed up in that movie. And I think one of the reasons that that movie didn't do better and doesn't have the emotional punch that it really should. I mean, Data was the Spock of Next Gen. That mm -hmm. movie should have the same emotional re resonance in that death scene as Spock dying in Star Trek II, yet it doesn't somehow. And I can't help but speculate that even the people that side with Data in, in this episode and walk away from this episode going, hell yeah, damn straight, you know, that was a great episode, uh, you know, way to go, Data, that still, in the bottom of their gut, see him die in, in Nemesis and go, well, you know, he wasn't really a person. I can't help but feel that way. Maybe I'm completely wrong, but I just got a sneaking suspicion. I have a Plus, feeling I have a feeling that it came out that way because he died in a terrible terrible movie that was poorly <laughs> written. So that's why I think it merits, didn't really have its I resonance. Like, I don't yeah. know. I'm not yeah, a I big like fan at all. I walked out of that movie just like going shaking my head and going I yeah, we, don't know what we, happened we there. Get, we got to get to the other movies eventually cuz I I want to give a defense of of both uh uh, insurrection and nemesis but anyway post nemesis and i go this isn't quite official canon but right. it's pretty darn close seeing as how you know the uh the the what do they call it countdown countdown yeah series led directly into uh -huh. the new star trek movie or the latest star trek movie the reboot movie whatever you want to call it the abrams movie there was a four issue miniseries and in that four issue miniseries data is back now, how did they bring Data back? Well, they brought him back by basically um, trying to think of the best word, to circumventing B4's personality, essentially killing B4 uh -huh. to resurrect Data. Now, before, where where was you know where were the advocates for him? You know, where were the people coming forward? Wait, 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 wait. He's a sentient being. You know, he's he's a he's a real person. You can't just do that. It doesn't seem like that was. If I seem to remember, they 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 conveniently circumnavigated that by saying, you know, they didn't want to bring data back because it would mean killing before, but eventually before like basically sacrificed himself came to the decision mm. that he would he wanted them to to you know 
deactivate him so data could so uh, which seemed to me a very convenient way yes, of that's pretty of advanced moral thinking for b4 as he was yes. established at nemesis it's also pretty crappy thinking as far as i'm concerned because i don't think you should do it you know <laughs> well also yeah, I... doesn't that basically <laughs> prove Maddox, I mean, doesn't that kind of prove him out, you know, yeah. that that data could be stored on a disk somewhere and and rebooted at some point in, you know, and brought well, back? I don't think this whole show would have even been an issue if data would have really believed that Maddox could have pulled it off. I think the whole core of it was data was like checked out Maddox and was like, well, he knew about him before, but and knows the guy's history he goes, I don't trust this guy to dump me into a mainframe and then dump me back when he's done. I don't think it's going <laughs> to you know happen. Funny? As I started to say, you know, come on, you, you, human beings can't be just downloaded into something. I thought, yeah. well, you know what? It, this is Star Trek. They kind of can. Yeah. yeah. Remember, so. remember, remember <laughs> a couple, remember I, my old, my own, I'm my own grandpa a few episodes back, you know, when grandpa was, when grandpa Jones came to visit from hee to, Data, remember he met the get Noonians, yeah, yeah, you know, peer or whatever, and and he would have trusted that guy to um to to dump him into a mainframe, you know. He was like, okay, you know, he started, he immediately trusted that guy, but he looked, at, you know, when he checked out Maddox, he's like, this guy is incompetent, you know. I don't, you know, it's like it's like somebody's like going, oh, you know, we really need to check out. We you have a very unique you know liver and they give you the most hack you know malpractice ridden surgeon to do it and they're like and this is the guy that's gonna yeah. do it and you have no choice <laughs> in the matter we're taking you in you know and and you're thinking to yourself well you know there's a good chance i'm gonna come out of this alive but then again i was watching him hit the old you know drinky drinky mm -hmm. before surgery before you know i don't know you know, you wouldn't want to do that. And that's what I think data is basically data is like, I don't think this guy's good. I think this guy's going to, you know, screw up. You know, I don't think he's going to plug all the parts right back in when, when the time comes. And that was the, the basis of it. I think if the guy was really confident and data respected him, he would have been just like, yeah, put me on the slab, you know, give me a brother, you know, in in a second he would have. So all the issues that came up with it were just sort of, I, the the real issue was, is Maddox competent <laughs> to take apart data in the first place? That should have also been mm -hmm. where I would have attacked it. I would have like been, hey, I have no problem with this guy taking my robot apart. You got to prove to me he's going to put him back together. Right. Because <laughs> his record you, doesn't say that. Mike, have you read those uh, the books and material uh, of of Data's resurrection? Of count, I've read Countdown. Uh, I read it, you know, two years ago, three years ago now, so I haven't read it recently. But, um, but I, I think I don't. I I have a vague memory that B four maybe wanted that done. But but it's interesting because for me, um, in both these legal episodes that we've looked at tonight, the the main common thread is the captain holding Starfleet accountable to its ideals. For me, the, the mm -hmm. clincher line in this episode is where Picard says, you know, Starfleet was founded to seek out new life. Well, there it sits, you know, and, and the same way with Kirk um, insisting that Starfleet get to the truth of the matter. And, um, and so it's unfortunate that, you know, here Picard 
carries the, the, the this is not what I don't think is unfortunate. I, I'm glad personally Picard carries the day with this episode. But if then a few decades later, however long it is, they forget that precedent and, and instead of allowing B4 the same chance Data had, which at the end of Nemesis it seems they're going to let B4 be B4 and evolve and grow because this is something they know Nuni and Sung creations can do. Um, but it's, if instead of doing that, they they wipe him and replace him with Data, um, that one, your point is, is valid. It proves that Maddox was right. And two, it's Starfleet betraying its ideals. It makes Starfleet um, act so. more like fanboys than Starfleet, you know? Yeah. I mean, even, like, Data's friends would be like, look, Data's gone. He got blown up in the ship, you know, and, and B4 is, you know, I could see Riker saying, you oh, know, B4 is his own person. I miss Data, you know, but No, I know die. for a fact Data sacrificed himself in Nemesis, so um, I guess that's perhaps the, the culmination of his self-realization. Um, and, and that speaking in my ordained minister capacity for a minute, that's the biblical definition of love. Greater love has no man than to lay down his right. life for his friends. So by that criteria, Data achieves personhood for sure by the end of the series. And I think he's well on his way to it at this point. But I'm glad you brought that up, Scott, about maybe Brent Spiner's doing things uh, more than a little bit, but less than a lot <laughs> differently for this episode. That that it maybe represents the beginning of that that uh, real. And, and like Chris pointed out, those things he does when no one is watching, when he's uh, it's not just being a simulation of humanity. Um, he's sitting there thinking about this Tasha. could be the point where that really gets going. And that he re has to address in court that he was intimate with her, and like. Now, do you and, think Picard knew what the answer to that question was going to be? I. I or he guessed don't, maybe, or I don't think anybody he did, but that but they just said we I, were interested. he doesn't seem shocked. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, he, but Picard doesn't. It might just be a deer in the headlights type thing with, with that, but <laughs> sure. I, I think Picard was just like, I wanted him to, like, he was trying to get him to say something from a sort of sentimental point of view. And, right. and then they, then right. they then they stumble into that and then and everybody <laughs> is visibly embarrassed but that's also like it, it's it's sort of a visceral emotional way of proving you know data's personality or personhood is that people aren't just embar aren't embarrassed because people were talking about sex but they're embarrassed be they're embarrassed for data because that was a personal thing between yeah. him and the late Tasha Yar and they I'll look away going, geez, we shouldn't be talking about this. And, you know, she's dead and that's none of our business. And, and you know, everybody just sort of looks away. And if it was just a machine that was just like, I did her, and, you know, most people would be like, wow, that's kind of weird, you know. But people were definitely just like, yeah. There's another thing in this episode that, you know, an another aspect that, that never gets brought up. You know, and, it, and it, to me, it kind of owes back to court martial. You know, there's the great scene with with Cogley where he talks about, you know, bringing us down to the level of the machine and possibly even elevating the machine over us mm -hmm. that, OK, once you've made this determination, you know, and I like that the basic issue that they're struggling with is, you know, the you know, again, the A.I. scenario, you know, if you're going to create a machine 
you know, that thinks and feels, what is your obligation to that machine? I, I like that they're considering that. However, that in itself sets up a dangerous precedent, you know, because how do you know that down the line, you're not only putting these machines on the same level as us, what if eventually those, those same machines now start to be elevated over us? You know, then you're, you're headed down a possible Terminator scenario. That's why you know they had I mean? him bend the steel there, I think, you know, not just to mm. prove that he was super strong, but to say, look, <laughs> Look what he's capable yes, of. Yeah. He's capable right. Yeah. Of That's this. a good point. Because you know, we'll revisit this this topic at least a couple more times because there's an you know I, I, to my recollection I believe they're both right toward the end of the series. There's one where the Enterprise gains sentience, which. That's all I can remember about the episode. Really? Is the Enterprise gained sentience, and I remember it being kind of a silly episode. And then there's another one that I detest where you basically have these little robots that look like a Star Wars torture droid with R2-D2 feet. And oh, they yeah. gain sentience, and we go through this whole thing again. This time, the only di difference in, those, in that episode and this episode is that this time you do have essentially little toaster-looking robots. Yeah. They don't remotely look human. So I think they were trying to revisit this episode with Maddox's argument of, you know, if it was a box on wheels, when this time it is a box on wheels, are you going to fight as hard? And they do, and they essentially, to my recollection, reach the same conclusions. Now you're just getting damn silly. Are you telling me that you know we're no longer allowed to even create a machine and, and expect it to follow orders, that the minute it deviates, we're going to deem it sentient and... You know, I mean, you're stymied at that point. You, you, you can't, you know, you can't accomplish what you set out to accomplish if you're not allowed creative freedom to create a machine for a specific purpose. Well, here's the thing. Maybe if you create a machine for a specific purpose, you should try to avoid giving it sentience. <laughs> that should that should be something you should be able to do. You know, I mean, creating, yeah. creating a sentient machine should be really hard. So I think usually in these science fiction stories, for the most, a lot of times the sentience is something that that wasn't planned for. That all of a sudden the machine starts functioning in a more complex manner and gaining sentience. So, right, which I find is a lot more implausible. But it may, you know, it makes for a good science because if you were. You know, it's like the, we just did the movie Dark Star where they had bombs that were sentient that were blowing up, you know, and it's like, why why make them sentient? And that's exactly what gets them in trouble at the end of the movie. Two last quick things. Uh, specific notes I had on this one was um, I'm pretty sure that the object that that data or excuse me, that Jordy is uh, is playing with and just kind of you know, tossing around in his hands when Data walks up to him and tend forward and asks him why he's sulking in the corner. Pretty sure that's a sprinkler head. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what he's doing with it, but I'm pretty sure that's what that object is. You know, I didn't know at first what it was, but what I was hoping it was was going to be the Chinese finger trap from uh, The Last oh, Outpost. Yeah. I don't like that episode, really, but that's a nice iconic moment of, of data you know, yeah. data finding out about humanity and i thought oh well, maybe he's got the finger trap he's remembering all the good times he's had with data i think <laughs> it's a sprinkler head oh well <laughs> i think it's a call back to the crescent wrench of the other episode i think that was their, <laughs> their shout out we need some sort of antiquated piece of <laughs> we, we need some 20th century prop yeah. in the future yeah. and uh 
very last note for me was uh, I was very proud of Logan. He, he was watching this episode with me, and uh, there's the moment when uh, Riker shuts off uh, Data, and he slumps over, and uh, Riker says, Pinocchio is broken. His strings have been cut. And Logan didn't use the word analogy or what, but basically his, his statement was something to the effect of that was a flawed analogy because Pinocchio never had strings. And I was just so proud. I was uh, like, yes. I got no strings on me. Uh, son, exactly. You are learning to nitpick, son. <laughs> Soon you'll be nitpicking with the big boys. <laughs> oh, wow. But, you know, at, at its heart, you know, agree or disagree or, or like me kind of walk away, not thoroughly convinced one way or the other. You know, this is a classic ep- you know, Star Trek episode because it's intelligent science fiction yeah. that really makes you think about the issues. And, well, you know, the, it harkens yeah. back to like Isaac Asimov, iRobot and, and all that. And, the, the, you know, they never really hit the, you know, the laws of robotics or anything like that. But, um, now let me ask you guys: What moment was it did, that 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 made you? Because there was a moment in here where that where there was a callback to court martial, where I was like, "All right, they definitely used court martial as a template for this." Was there a moment like that for you guys? Oh, yeah, yeah, it was when uh, when Picard insisted on having Data's um, yes. record. Yes, read. that's the same yes. as I had. Yeah, great. Right. That was great. Yeah, and the fact that they had those palm readers that everybody had, you know, had to put yeah. their hands on the palm readers and all that. I missed the sound effect though. You know, I I, I would oh, really hey. have liked the little <laughs> sound effect. I love that sound. <laughs> now, now they just look like glowing space coasters in in the next generation. Yes, I I don't like the fact that they have to sit back in the witness chair so that Brent Spiner's arms can go into the arms of the chair and you know so then they have Maddox sit the same way all slouching back in the witness chair it was but, uh, it was cracking me up the scene where his where Riker was walking around with his hand and Brent Spiner had to probably sit in the chair with his arm bent behind his back and his sleeve hanging there he looked so right, awkward and right that's what I mean yeah it's, it's not sleeve. a special position but I, my other note, I only had one other note. I liked the special effects, and I loved the uh, the way the star base looked. And uh, the regular one, yes, yes, regular one from Star Trek Two. It 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 was you know it was uh, above and beyond the normal computer animation of a of the usual now TNG how, uh, show. How nitpicky and anal retentive am I that it bugs me that every resource I find that talks about this episode and mentions that model calls it the regular one model from Star Trek Two. It's actually the star base from Star well, Trek the Motion Picture, right, and then they just flipped right, it upside down right. for regular you're one. Right. You are right. Well, they're te- yeah. they're technically right too, but they're just yeah. Well, not yeah, I know, but right. it just yeah, it just bugs me. Yeah. Well, you know, of course, that's the more popular. You got movie, a lot but... more screen time in Star Trek Two. I, I, yes, I guess the, the the answer to your question is very nitpicky. Yes, I know. Fairly to very nitpicky, but I respect you for it, <laughs> and I do. Fairly nitpicky with a eighty four percent chance of griping. This is a Scott Gardner weather report. We should have a we should have a little widget for people's phone that has a Scott Gardner, you know, um, 
you know, sunny, sunny with a with a chance of Disney, and then like you know, <laughs> cl- cloudy with a ninety five percent chance of road rage. I, I tell you what, I want you know when I when I eventually gain a position where I have my own office and and a secretary and all that sort of thing, I want oh, what Al Shepard had, which was. His secretary had all these pictures of him ranging from him with a big grin to like this just, you know, just scary scowl. Steam coming and depending, out of his Yeah, ears. depending on what his mood of the day was, that was the picture that would be posted outside of his office door uh-huh. so that you, when you came to him with an issue, you could look at the picture and know what mood he was in you, for that you, you day. You would know. even wanted to bother What days you wanted to, I was just going to say, what days you wanted to just turn around and go and away. away. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yep, and I then you would hear that. all the legendary stories about the people who don't pay attention to this and like go walk it. You know, you had the storm picture up and they go walk it and like, hey, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> they needed a surgeon to remove the boot. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're you're already looking forward to it. <laughs> oh, you know it. <laughs> Closing thoughts. The only other note I had was uh, I liked the moment where Riker is studying the schematic and he finds the off button and his face lights up and he knows, oh, I've got my closing argument. And then his face falls because he realizes what it means for data. I think that's a really nice moment and hats off to Jonathan Frakes for for doing so much in like just a few seconds there with his face. Just a few seconds in a close-up and I actually had to think of it. I'm like, what happened there? And he goes, and I thought... Oh, he found his winning argument, and then he went. Oh, I found my it's winning a, it's argument. It's a nice, yeah. it's a nice moment. It's a oh, good. Yeah. He, the first thought is, "Wow, this is a good argument." Right. Oh, this is a good argument. <laughs> yeah, it's very nice. Yes. What do we got now? We need to. Uh, we need to select uh, the episode for oh, next time. Oh yeah. Oh god, let me kickstart the old uh, Star Trek computer here. The noises really are there. <laughs> I had just oh, I think you even told me, but I just No, you guys think we're fooling around here? No, no, I just thought you know, not fooling, but I, I'm impressed. Have you not heard the music in the background the whole time? I'm <laughs> I'm sitting in an orchestra pick right now. Right. Number forty. Number forty is oh no. <laughs> what? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> what is it? Coochie, 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 coo, Captain? Oh, no. Is that... Um, yeah, it's Friday's Child. Friday's Child. child. Oh. oh, she's hot. Uh, uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. I haven't seen it in years. Exactly. Maybe it'll be better than I remember, but I just remember it being... Uh, being um. Oh, well, crap, essentially, you know, so I don't know. We'll, we'll see, though. It, it might be all right. I think it has some good music in it, though. <laughs> Faint praise from Scott Gardner. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, well, Mike, thanks for bringing a touch of class to the show once again. God oh, knows we well. need it. <laughs> Thank you for <laughs> inviting me on. I do appreciate it. Anytime, my friend, anytime. It's always a delight to have you, and we really do appreciate you, uh, Coming on and uh, and like Chris says, bringing some class because uh, I think we were extra special class in this episode. When, when, uh... <laughs> well, I'm not going to take anything Chris says about Jag officers seriously anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I felt like a total, 
I felt like a total dweeb, so thanks a lot for that. <laughs> oh, but that, that's a reference to the episode from the original series, Chris. <laughs> I'm just saying, six, uh... saying, choose your words wisely when you're a scriptwriter on TV. <laughs> I know this was in the days before Beavis and Butthead, but that doesn't mean there weren't Beavises and Buttheads out there that were just like, yeah. <laughs> Hey, before we go, actually, can I plug something? I've never plugged anything. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But but now I have something to plug because I am a contributing writer to a blog called thescifichristian.com. And uh, you don't have to be Christian to visit the website. That's that's our name. But it is a bunch of uh, writers who who love sci-fi and fantasy and – and and do happen to be Christian, and we take uh, our passion for the genre, and sometimes we'll just give straight out reviews, you know, our opinions. But we also take uh, and look at those things we love uh, through the lens of our religion, and we have some really good theological and philosophical discussions going on there. So uh, that's the SciFiChristian.com, and uh, I chime in about Star Trek and Doctor Who and some other things. And also, just a reminder from the published Star Trek author in your audience that my story is still available as an ebook <laughs> strange new worlds 2 on amazon makes a great gift it's an awesome story too <laughs> it, it honestly is an awesome story let me let me it's ask right. you this what's the what what do you think is the most dominant fandom on that on that blog on the sci-fi christian.com yeah, yeah um well it varies right now uh, the avengers is very hot right right <laughs> what is that dom- i never heard of it Right, right, yeah. A little independent flick, I think. Um, but uh, the most dominant fandom. Uh, well, there is a lot of a lot of love for Marvel comics over there. Um, I mean, I would imagine it would b- depend mostly on like the age of people, you know, like. And to the more recent, like, I'm the only one who ever brings up the original series of Star Trek. Right, right, right. I'm the only Superman fan over there. They're all about Batman at the same because i find in myself in a lot of like sci-fi places like that there's a lot of like doctor who fans you know and um yeah and uh but but i will say this even though uh it tends toward the more recent the people there have a, a healthy appreciation for they're willing to you know we're all encompassing in terms of genre and fandom so uh, if you've got something interesting to say about it people will give a listen so excellent Again, Mike, thanks thanks so much for joining yes. us. We really do appreciate thanks it. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it too. Do you ever find yourself going to Amazon.com and uh, buying some record or movie or some stupid thing that two true freaks have been talking about so that you can catch up on it or you've been reminded of it or something? Well, now, how about this? Instead of going to Amazon.com, go to twotruefreaks.libson.com and follow our link to Amazon.com. When you do that, if you buy something over at Amazon, we get a little cut out of it which is awesome because we love money and it won't cost you a thing.
You can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Libsyn is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Join our forum at forumforgeeks.com where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. Dumbass. And hey, you can friend me, Scott Gardner, on Facebook too. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. You can friend me on Facebook too, if you can find me. Now available, Two True Freaks t-shirts. See our website for details. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com league. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of... Two True Freaks. And this is your Uncle Don saying good night. Good night, little kids. Good night. We're off? Good. Well, that ought to hold the little bastards. <laughs>